We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles. We're in chapter 14 this evening. Second Chronicles in chapter 14. We're making good, good progress through our Bibles here, reading together a little bit at a time. So Abijah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa his son reigned in his place. In his days the land was quiet for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and make walls around them, and towers, gates, and bars, while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears, and from Benjamin 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows, and all these were mighty men of valor. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marashah. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah at Marashah. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar, So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army, and they carried away very much spoil. Then they defeated all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they plundered all the cities, for there was exceedingly much spoil in them. They also attacked the livestock enclosures and carried off sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem." Well, it's good to hear of a time of peace in the nation of Israel, isn't it? A little bit of uh, of good days there, 10 years of peace, and then, uh, wow, that was shattered by an army of a million men coming up against them. That is just amazing to think about that. Can you think about facing that kind of army with 580,000 people, which is a goodly number, but uh, it's almost two to one odds against you. speaking in terms of how the world looks at things. So, well, um, God prevailed uh, for them once again. 
All right, well, let's move right into Matthew 19, where our study will be this evening, and trust that uh, we'll get some profit out of this. This This is a well-known passage about the rich young ruler, and the truth of our message tonight is pretty obvious uh, from the passage. Salvation is so difficult to obtain as to be impossible as far as man is concerned. It's so difficult as to be impossible. Well, Matthew just keeps uh, pouring out the material here with uh, no delay. Uh, The the Lord's three-year-plus ministry is compressed into a fairly small amount of space, in the text of the Gospels, and Matthew has to keep moving efficiently from one item to the next to uh, cover it all. After teaching uh, earlier in the chapter on marriage and divorce, uh, those who are gifted to be single, blessing the little children, the Lord is approached by a wealthy young man with a question about his soul. And how many times I wish that uh, somebody in our day and age would come up and ask us a question like this. Uh, You two men who will be out next Sunday, Pray God will give you a few people that will ask, uh, how, can I, how can I have eternal life? Do people not care about these things anymore? They just care about the run, you know, rat race, the uh, workaday world, the, the, the entertainment, uh, you know, when, when is the ball game on, all, the, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just kind of uh, strange that, yeah, yeah, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, just hedonism. Uh, and I know, I think... The reality is, though, that there are a lot of people who do care. They have thoughts about their soul. They're, they're in angst on the inside. You know, you see the hopelessness. You see the uh, people that don't know what to do with themselves, uh, that, that, that are uh, in, in despair. Um, and they really do have, if they knew how to formulate maybe the question, <laughs> maybe you'll be able to bring that to them as you minister and as we do in the course of uh, the upcoming days. Um, so he, he asks, uh, you know, the question about his soul. And there's a lot we can criticize about this fellow, to be honest, to be straightforward rather with you, but give him this, at least he concerned himself with his soul. That's more than we can say for some people. Um, you know, obviously he had some problems, and we'll get into those here just now. Uh, starting in verse number 16, it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life. So he uh, said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Okay, well, we start getting off on a bad foot right there. Let's think about this. So the man addresses Jesus as good teacher. Uh, we can't be certain to the full extent about which he thought of Jesus as good or what exactly he thought about Jesus, but we can safely, I think, say the following. He understood that Jesus was a good man. Uh, he, we know that there was no one better. We know that. But someone only superficially familiar with Jesus would at least know that he was a decent guy, a good man. Jewish theology would think of him uh, as, as a regular man, is on his way to heaven. He was pleasing to God. He was like Elijah or Enoch or Moses or Abraham, a good teacher, a good rabbi. He was not one who was uh, given over to nonsense. You couldn't detect hypocrisy uh, in him. Uh, he was a good teacher. And so this rich young man, as we'll find out, is just introduced to us as a w- one who came but then later on we learn he's a young man. Later on we learn he's, he's wealthy as well. 
but he sees Jesus that way. And so he thinks he's got a good source for the answer to his question. This guy must have it figured out, he reasons. He knows what he's doing. He's on his way to heaven, so I'll ask him what to do about this question. What good thing, and I think this really kind of means what good work or what good works, what good stance should I take before God that I shall obtain eternal life? Either, either he wanted to obtain it, not thinking he had it, or he had already maybe thought he had obtained it and wanted to make sure that he had it kind of locked up and that he was on the right track. But with the question, he, he starts off a little bit on the wrong foot because salvation is never about what good we do anyway, but only about the good that was already done by Jesus. We'll excuse him for now for that and uh, let that go. Um, you know, I, we don't usually criticize, for example, the, um, the Philippian jailer who says, what must I do to be saved? And, and he gets the answer, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Good question, great answer. Uh, if people don't formulate the question just perfectly right, well, just let it go and give them the answer that they need. Um, Jesus responds then to the address and to the question. Good teacher, he says, why, why do you call me good? Jesus points the man to the ultimate standard of goodness. And I believe that we should understand that Jesus humbly ignores himself in this situation, though he does fit the description, doesn't he? There's none good but God, and he's God the Son. And so, but he just sets himself aside and says, look, you're calling me good, but I want you to think of the real standard of good, and that is the standard of God. He's taught in Matthew 5.48, unless you're perfect, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. You have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And this fellow... Uh, needed to understand that very, very carefully. So what to do? Well, Jesus says, to enter into eternal life, you have to keep the commandments. Now, we could understand this in two kind of two shades of meaning, if you will, or in two ways or two directions. First, Jesus could be holding out law-keeping as an actual method to achieve salvation. That is, if you can keep the law, then have at it, and and everything will be fine. That's not correct, of course, so we turn to another approach. Why is it not correct? Well, Romans 3.20, a verse which I am fond of repeating over and over and over again, is that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Justification is impossible by the law. Making people better people is impossible by law, by the law of Moses or by any law for that matter. That principle goes no matter what kind of realm that you're in. You're not going to bend people into good people by just making more laws. So that's, that's not the right approach that, you know, he's kind of holding out a hypothetical law-keeping as a way of salvation. But secondly, another way here is that Jesus could be using law-keeping to bring the man to recognize that he cannot keep the law. Said another way, the law, we know it can't be used in a positive way to obtain life, but in a negative way, it can show that eternal life cannot be obtained by keeping the law because simply the law cannot be kept perfectly. So he says, 
keep the commandments. And if the man could do that, then everything would be all well. But the point of the question is to get him to realize he can't do that. He can't. So the man asks another question. The man responded in verse number 18. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, keep the commandments. And this man responds, which ones? As if there are some that are more important than others or some subset that's you know, the, really the, the issue that if you keep those, then you're good. Um, he's continuing down the wrong path here. The good teacher has just told you that you have to keep the commandments. The grammar indicates that these commandments are well known to Jesus and to the people to whom he speaks. The young man should have known what he was talking about. If nothing else, he should have said to himself, well, the Lord must be talking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So Jesus responds with a list of the commandments that this young man should be keeping in verse number 18. Now, would you turn your Bible to Exodus 20, please? Exodus 20, and I want you to... Uh, keep your eyes there. Open your Bibles. If you are here and alive, I want you to open your Bible. That includes you, young men back there, my sons. <laughs> don't, don't think that you get a pass just because you're the pastor's kid. Open that Bible up to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. I suppose you could, you know, be smart about it and go to Deuteronomy where the Ten Commandments are also listed. What chapter is that, by the way? Does anybody remember Deuteronomy? Yeah, it's Cinco, five. Um, but in chapter 20 of Exodus is where we're more familiar with it. And let's see, start in verse number uh, 12. Start in verse number 12. And just look down there. And I'm going to read from Matthew. You're going to look at these commands, and you're going to keep track of which ones the Lord mentions. Jesus responds this way to the man. He says, you shall not murder. Okay, You're following an exodus. You're seeing which ones are listed and which ones are not. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And then a positive one, honor your father and mother. And then finally, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, what did you find? Right, so he did not list commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4, but he did list some of, most of 5 through 10. Which one did he not list? We have a vote for covet, and that's correct. He didn't say, do not covet, which was the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and so on and so forth. So... He didn't list them in the same order that they're here, right? You, you found that they were a little bit out of order from this passage, and that's fine. The order doesn't matter. But um, so Jesus listed, he listed six items. Five of them we find on the list of the Ten Commandments in the latter half of it. 
And then he added one more statement. Remember what I read last there, what Jesus said last? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is that one of the Ten Commandments? No, but what is that? It's a summary statement, and you don't have to turn there, but if you look in um, Leviticus 19 sometime, and it's in verse 18, I believe it is, Uh, Yes, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the sixth here of loving your neighbor as yourself is an umbrella command which encompasses or covers the um, the second part of the law, the second table of the law. It's the second great summarizing commandment from Matthew 22. Remember the two great commandments of the law? Love, Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So there's the vertical, there's the horizontal, all in two grand statements, the great commandments, if you will. Um, and uh, in, in Exodus, the final of the Ten Commandments is you shall not covet your neighbor's you know, stuff. And the command to love your neighbor does kind of include this. I mean, if you love your neighbor, you're, not going to, you're going to be glad for them that they have the things that they have, not want to take them for yourself. But you might wonder why the Lord didn't include this commandment specifically. Hold on to that thought. Um, I wonder why Jesus also did not include the first four of the Ten Commandments. What are those? Drew has mentioned they have to do with our relationship to God. Love the Lord your God. Well, no idols. Don't take his name in vain. Um, to keep the Sabbath. What's the fourth one? I missed one here. Uh, where I have no other gods before me, you know, and, uh, and um, don't take his name in vain and all of that. This is the first ten, first, sorry, the first four of the Ten Commandments. My speculation is that these are missing because the, the, the second table of the law deals with human-to-human relationships, and that was enough to show the young man that he was not going to heaven. He did, the Lord didn't need to, to do all ten. He could just take Five, plus the summarizing commandment six, the number six one he listed, to show the young man that he had some sin problems that he needed to deal with. If you can't manage the commandments number five through ten, you're not going to have a chance with one to four, are you? I mean, getting your relationship to God right is even harder than getting your relationship to your fellow man right. If you, you know, you love God, you say you love God whom you haven't seen, what about the people you can see? Uh, and dealing with that. But anyway, first table of the law, I think, is harder in a sense because it has to do with our relationship to the Lord. So the man boldly replies after Jesus gives him this listing of commandments. In verse 20, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Well, now this guy is just not getting it. There's no way he kept the letter and spirit of the law in all of these cases perfectly. And we haven't even listed any more than five or six, if you will, the summarizing one, of the 613 laws in the Old Testament as they're counted. Did this young man never hate anybody in his heart? Did he never look with lust? Did he ever take something even small that belonged to someone else? Did he ever lie, even a white lie? Did he never talk back to his parents when he was young? Did he always look out for others as much as he looked out for himself? 
let's just be honest. <laughs> this, this young man didn't do that any more than you or I have done that because the law, again, is given to point out sin and there is none righteous. The fact that his conscience did not strike him shows that he was taught a superficial understanding of the holiness of God and the law of Moses. He was thinking externally, as far as I can remember, and I'm not thinking too hard about it. My general pattern has, to be, has been to be a good person. But the bottom line is, he just lied to Jesus. That's a sin, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and besides that, he didn't show any humility either. He was proud the direct opposite of what the Lord just taught in chapter 18 about being humble as a little child. People who enter the kingdom of God are that way. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good, no, not one. Romans 3:10 and 12. All have sinned, Romans 3:23, and fall short of the glory of God. He did not admit that he was a sinner and stands in need of the forgiveness of God. So he was a liar and he was an arrogant young man. Then the man asks, as if that matter's settled, what do I still lack? It's like almost like, and I, I can't say this for sure, but it's almost like the Lord gives him a list of commandments and the young man says, no sweat, what next? What else? So the Lord replies then a third time in this back and forth dialogue that's going on. Jesus then gives the standard in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, uh-oh, uh-oh, <laughs> if you want to be perfect, there is something that lacks, young man. You need to do something. Now, perfection is what it takes to have eternal life. That's why the title of our message talks about it being impossible. What comes next, I believe, is an instruction from Jesus, specifically for this young man. It does not apply to everyone in general. It shows specifically where this fellow had the most difficulty in being righteous. The other five commandments were enough to condemn him, but this one was going to be the deal breaker. This was going to be obvious. The Lord Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. The Lord in his omniscience has pointed out the, the one area which was the most troublesome for this young fellow. Materialism, riches, love of money, that root of all kinds of evil. It's connected, this love of money, with the sixth commandment of the second table. That is number 10, do not covet. This young fellow had a problem in that area. And so I think you see why the Lord maybe left it out of the first listing. He said, let's deal with these. Okay, now we're going to deal with this last one. And that's the one. The young man's problem was with stuff. He was trusting in riches. He could not let them go or use them for God. He did not care about the impoverished around him and, and, and other things like that. Psalm 49, 6-8 says this, Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches... None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. So again, we've said this before, but 
if you have wealth, that is a danger. But that not, does not necessarily mean that you're condemned to eternity apart from Christ. If you have them, that in the right, what do you say, priority, proportion. Um, you know, it's a strange thing. I was speaking with somebody, and, and this is such an, for, for me, uh, how can I say it? It's a uh, foreign idea, not to toot my own horn or anything, but maybe you also. People who think about life just in terms of money, like, uh, you know, they look at uh, several situations and they say, boy, she really married well. She got a man with money, you know, um, or this person made a really poor decision. You know, that guy, this woman should have chose a better husband because this guy just is a blue collar nobody. You know, he's, they're barely getting by. Without regard for the spiritual condition of the people, without regard for their love for one another, without regard for how well their personalities mesh together and all of that, and you look at life like that, that is awful. That's just awful to look at life like But people actually do that. 1 Timothy 6.17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Look, in the day of judgment, you can't pay off God. God owns everything. Everything you have to pay him off, you actually borrowed from him, right? It's not like it's going to phase him at all. Are you going to give him back what he loaned to you and say, here, God, let me buy my soul? That's not going to impress him. He wants to know if you have love for him, if you, you have repented of your sin, are humble before him. The result of this young man selling what he owned would be to deposit something more important than earthly riches into his heavenly bank account. He would be demonstrating a spirit that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things then would be added to him. Uh, and, with, and with no riches to trust in or to follow, he would be able to follow Christ in an unhindered fashion. The young man had to process all of this. And maybe it's good for us to just stop and think for a moment and let it sink in for a minute how this relates to us. Do we have a problem with any of these particular commandments? Is the coveting one, the, the materialism thing, is that a hang-up for us? Something that we need to reevaluate? Well, it says, when the young man heard that saying, verse 22 he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was so sad because to have eternal life to him was so costly that he could not deal with it. He was very wealthy, and evidently his security was in his riches, not in God. He was more concerned about wealth than sin, more concerned about riches than righteousness. Hmm. May that not be our case. So the Lord, after this happens, um, talks to the disciples a little bit and gives them kind of a, uh, you know, after class for them on this matter. And that really takes up from verses 23 to 30. And uh, we'll just go through this and touch some of the highlights of it before we finish tonight. 
in 23, it says here, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, read along with me in your Bible there, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you boil this down and kind of strip away the figures of speech and that's all that stuff, you come down to this statement, it's impossible for people, rich people, to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's impossible for anybody to enter the kingdom of heaven since we know that entering the kingdom requires being born again, then make a substitution in the statement. It's impossible for rich people to, to be what? To be born again, right? If it's impossible to enter the kingdom and to, be, to enter the kingdom, you have to be born again. Just take kingdom out, put born again in, and you say the same thing. It's impossible for those to be born again who have riches and trust in those riches. They just had an example of that before their eyes. Can you imagine somebody concerned about their soul walking away with no change, no, they had the answer, but no answer for them because they wouldn't accept the answer. Uh, What was he going to do? Go find some other good teacher and ask him and kind of shop around until he found the answer that he liked? I don't know. Now, we know that salvation is not impossible for God because verse 26 says, With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. But humanly speaking, sins, including covetousness, greed, and lack of recognizing them as such, keeps people from seeing their need and the provision that God has made for them. Now, let me touch a couple of details here. Um, I summarized the whole first two verses here of this segment, 23 and 24, with the statement, it's impossible, because the camel going through the needle's eye is that. It's not happening. It's not happening. The Lord uses that a kind of hyperbole, that exaggerated statement to say, you know, if you can imagine shoehorning a big camel through the eye of a sewing needle, uh, that's how hard it is to get somebody into heaven. You're going to destroy the camel and the needle before you get it done. It's just not going to happen. Um, secondly, a detail here, another detail, who is rich? Who qualifies as rich? Well, everybody I'm looking at in this room does. Many of the people online looking at me do. Um, if you're in the United States and reading you know, these notes or listening to this message, most likely you are because you have a computer and a screen to look at and speakers to hear, and you have a home to live in and a, probably a car to drive and a you know, roof over your head and many clothes in your closet and dresser and, and all of that. Some people subsist on one outfit and dirt floors and barely make it day to day with their food and a few bucks a day or less than that even. Um, you may have a lesser degree or greater degree of riches, but in, in, from my perspective, I'm not seeing a ton of grinding, abject poverty in our land. Okay, The kind you see in dirt floor communities in third world countries around the world where they're gathering you know, straw or thatch or making sod roofed homes, you're not doing that. You're much, much more advanced than that in terms of the economic situation. Finally, a detail here, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonyms. If you look at verse 23, it says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, it's easier for a camel to go to the avenue than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, synonyms. Just chalk that up. Don't get confused about those. Many people have over the years. Many dispensationalists have over the years, but there's really no reason to be confused about that. They're synonyms. They're actually nicknames for the kingdom of the God of heaven. I've said that before. The kingdom of the God of heaven, sometimes abbreviated the kingdom of God, sometimes abbreviated the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we've got that done. All right, the disciples recognized the impossibility of salvation in verse number 25. When they heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Good answer, disciples, good answer. They were concerned about the whole matter, but this episode made them think even more deeply about it and maybe their own situation. And the Lord agreed with them. With men, it is impossible to be saved. But with God, the impossible becomes possible because he has ability that we do not have. He has omnipotence where we have weakness. He has infinity where we have finiteness or finity, if you will, I suppose. We don't have what he has. So this is why salvation, as we'll see in Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. It's of Yahweh. That's all. Salvation is of God. You want to be saved, you have to appeal to God. You want to get into heaven, you have to ask the owner of heaven. <laughs> you know, There's no other way around it. You can't say, well, I'm going to choose. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to be self-autonomous. I've got this thing all figured out. That's the essence of human arrogance and pride. You just have to recognize you are not as good as you think you are. You're not such hot stuff. Neither was this rich young man, despite all the wealth that he had. Verse 27 then records Peter's statement reflecting on the fact that they have done something like what the Lord said to the rich young man. He said, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? In other words, give us a little detail about this uh, you know, riches in the kingdom of heaven. If you, you know, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. What does that look like? I mean, the Lord did come along and say to Peter and to James and John and all those guys, he's come and follow me. And they left everything and they followed him. They did, just like the Lord had asked of the rich young ruler. Now, the Lord does not always ask his followers to do that, to leave everything behind. But in these cases, he did. Peter is asking, what treasure is going to be for us in the kingdom of heaven? What's that going to look like? And so the Lord replies, Assuredly, verse 28, I say to you that in the regeneration that is in the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I, it just occurs to me right now, but if this were, some people believe this just fast forwards us to heaven, there is no millennial kingdom. If that were the case, what would be the need for judging the 12 tribes of Israel during the heavenly state? Why would there be a need for that? There wouldn't. These guys are going to be helping Christ rule the tribes of Israel, just like the church is going to be helping to rule the world of the Gentiles during the millennial kingdom. So they're going to be in this place. The regeneration is the restoration. It's the redemption of, of creation. It's the millennial kingdom. So they'll have a place next to the Lord ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. They'll be, they'll be in a place of prominence and power and service to God. That being the case... Whatever they left behind is going to be minor compared to what they have in their possession during that time of a thousand years of glory, of grace, of regeneration, of 
redemption, of new life, of prosperity, and all the ways that we talked about in the last weeks about the kingdom when we visited those texts. It's going to be a place of greatness for them. Similarly, all who uh, leave behind precious things in this life will receive many times more than that in the life to come. Look at verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That's a comforting kind of thought that any of the deprivations that our fellow brothers and sisters feel today will be gone and they will have houses and lands. They'll have you know the things that uh, can be useful to them and, and helpful and a blessing a hundredfold over and on top of that eternal life in the heavenly state. In the kingdom before that and then in the heavenly state as it unfolds after the thousand-year kingdom is done. So that's a, a thing to look forward to. Um, you know, sometimes you might think, well, I, I just kind of, I'm going to leave those out of my mind. I'm not serving the Lord for that stuff. And that's true, you're not. But there is a reward for those who follow God. And it will be a reward that is not just some mystical, you know, uh, ghostly kind of thing, but it'll be a real reward. It'll be a real position, prominence, uh, wealth, if you will. It will be real um, peace, prosperity, uh, wholeness, um, health. That, that stuff is real. So don't just kind of be too pious and say, well, that's, you know, I'm just going to forget about all that. No, I'm thankful for those things. And we are, when we, especially when we talk about somebody who's passed away and say that they're freed from all the ills that their earthly body had, and they will be when they're resurrected and join the, the, the uh, you know, contingent of all who go into the kingdom of Christ and the millennium, will have those afflictions removed, among many other things. You won't have the affliction of having to deal with this cursed world in which we live now, at least in the heavenly state. It'll be totally gone. In the millennial kingdom, it will be greatly reduced. And so we can be thankful for that. And then the Lord almost kind of dips into chapter 20 here. I almost You almost could wish that chapter 20 started at verse 30 of 19, but he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. We've we're familiar with this kind of upside-down arrangement in God's economy compared to the world economy. If you're the best, you're the worst. And if you're the worst, you're going to be the best. If you're the last, you're going to be the first. And he illustrates that with the parable of the workers of the vineyard. So I'm not going to study this uh, or, or try to get into this all at the moment. We'll touch on what this means as we get to the end of the parable because look at verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So that these phrases, these words here, bookend or create an envelope for the parable of the workers in the vineyard and, and uh, will help us understand what it means. So we'll wait for that study in depth to get the full effect of it. But at least for now, um, you can kind of see how it connects back. I mean, people who leave everything now will have everything later. People who leave nothing now or in other words, they have everything now, we'll have what later? Nothing, right? The, Luke 16, the rich man. You know, you had your, 
you had your sumptuous meals and all that good stuff, and Lazarus had his misery. Now the tables are turned upside down, and you have misery, and he has peace. And so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Everything will be turned about in a different way. And somehow, somehow we have to get through our, uh, I'll, I'll say kindly, our thick skulls, <laughs> that God's ways are different than our ways. God's nature is different than our nature. His priorities are different than our priorities. And if we can get on that wavelength with God and, and continue to grow in that, we too will become kind of out of synchronized nature with the world. We'll just be out of sync because we'll look at it and we'll say, oh, that's just, that's just weird. Like, why do they think that way? Why do they think that's okay? Um, why do they do that? Because you'll begin to be in this last is first and first is last uh, mentality that the Lord is trying to teach us. This humility is the path to greatness. Service is the path to leadership, totally upside down from the world. Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you for Father's Day. You are a great father to us, and you have shown us in the Word of God and by the examples of good Christian homes how to be good fathers. We thank you for the fact that we can call you Abba, Father, and trust that you have our best interests at heart, that you care for us, you love us. And when we're in depth of pain and affliction, difficulties, angst, not knowing what to do or where to turn, you are our Father. Thank you for that. And each one who's a father here today, each one who remembers a father here today, uh, each one who has a father who is a, who is or has a grandfather, Lord, who is a father by biology or adoption, whatever the case. Lord, bless them tonight, this day. May they enjoy the blessings of having a quiver full of however many youngsters you have given to them and their spouse. And we just thank you for the kindness you've bestowed. Thank you for our fathers. And we pray that you'd help us to understand this message about the rich young ruler. Help riches not captivate us, but help us to use them to serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.